Hey everybody, it's Dan from the Overrun Podcast, and uh, I'm here sitting with a, a special guest today, um, Dave Araman, a flight medic who uh, started out on the east coast of, New- of the U.S. and has traveled all the way to Alaska and the Middle East and a lot of different places. So uh, we thought we'd have him come in and talk about um, some alternate paths and you know, some of the other opportunities are out there for paramedicine in uh, the world. So uh, welcome, Dave. Thank you for having me. No problem. So talk to me about your trip. <laughs> so uh, about three years ago, I've been in Alaska. A lot of my coworkers, friends here, they uh, never would have thought I would have been out there for, for this long. Right. Um, I've had a few other jobs where I went to the Middle East. Okay. Saudi Arabia was supposed to be a two-year contract. It lasted all of 60 days for me as uh, the company decided to renegotiate and said, we, we can't pay you anymore. So uh, I was able to come back and work for the company that I was flying for at the time. Okay. Um, one of the other chief flight medics at the time stayed in country, had different ideas, and rather than starting the medevac for the civilian side, he wanted to do a little bit more fixed wing, and that mm-hmm. was providing security for the royal family at the time of Saudi Arabia. And we would work contracts with the Ministry of Interior, and that was a really big helicopter. It's an S ninety two. That was very appealing to to look at. But the problems with working in in a country where you are basically a fish out of water. It's yeah, I can imagine yeah. just completely different just civilization not, society wise just learning culture right co- customs not being able to go to a store on a certain day because it's family day and you're there as a single male oh wow right so there were some struggles that i've had but other than that i was able to come back when about two months after doing that i gave it a good try it was at least a little bit longer than the first contract and then i decided to come back and keep flying on the east coast Okay, so yeah, so uh, you know, ground medic, flight medic, east coast of the United States, um, probably one of the densest population volumes, you know, out there in the world. I mean, you know, maybe Hong Kong or someplace probably has a little bit higher, but for the most part, uh, you know, just a huge population density. Density. So, what what led you to Alaska? My uh, medevac that I was working for at the time. They uh, decided to uh, relocate, and I didn't want to have to really commute from Philadelphia to the Jersey Shore about three or four times a day. Okay. And being the little bit of an adventurer that I was, I I put my resume out on Indeed. I saw a job opening for a company in Alaska that was offering relocation and uh, some assistance while you're coming out there with the promise of an advanced scope of practice, and that really appealed to me. Um, and when I looked at the job descriptions for flight nurse, flight paramedic, they were essentially the same and held to the same standard. So the interview was 11 o'clock at night, my time, because it was a seven o'clock at night, Alaskan time. Okay. So just knowing that, um, basically time traveling when you are talking to someone from there to here. Right. Um, and then, and they, it's a teleconference cause you're exactly. not flying out there to, to do an interview. No, they usually won't fly you out there just for the first interview. Makes Um, sense. And then they get a general idea. They give you a lot of clinical scenarios. They ask you personality type questions. And then once uh, you get invited for 
a second interview, you would come out. That's basically, is the program a fit for you? Do you like um, the weather, mm-hmm. the climate of Alaska? Uh, do the people that personally going to be working with you? It's your audition as much as that is a job interview. So past all of that, and next thing I know, I'm on a plane in January, starting 20, 2016, starting for a, a medevac company up in, up in the 49th state, the last frontier, as they call it. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, um, you know, we were talking before the show about some of the dimensions involved. And, in, you know, on the East Coast, uh, you know, we're here in the U.S. And, you know, most people, you know, um, you know, UK or if you're in a metropolitan area in the U.S., you know, your your transport times. I mean, people look at, oh, we had a 20, 25 minute transport time to the to the ER, like, Ugh, you know, or, you know, I did a critical care transport from, you know, one city to the other and it was an hour and a half, you know. Tell me about some of the distances that are involved up there. I mean, I don't think I, I think people down here don't really understand like what it entails. Sure. We're um basically based out of his Anchorage, which is the biggest population wise city in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy to think that there are less than a million people who live in the whole state. So about half of that population live in the Anchorage section. The next biggest city is Fairbanks in population wise, but there's a distance of about 400 miles, roughly estimated. Okay. So Alaska only has two level two trauma centers. Really? Yes. And no burn centers. And where's your nearest burn center? It would be Seattle. That's a typical three hour flight. If you leave from Anchorage, sometimes Right, and that's a fixed wing because rotor wing's not doing it. No, we have Learjets and King Airs. Oh wow, that seems to be that's the standard medevac plane for, especially for Alaska. Um, And we can transport up to two patients at a time if need be. Okay. So we also have planes uh, stationed around Alaska in different villages. So if they know they're going to a burn patient, they'll a lot of logistic logistical pieces have to fall together. And you got to think of pilot duty time. When can we come on? Because pilots can legally only fly for a certain amount of hours Okay. before they can't fly anymore. So there's times where the person may be injured, say around noon in a perfect world, but they may not be able to start getting towards the trauma center until about four or six o'clock sometimes. So wow. there's no, the golden hour kind of just turns into your golden hour shot it's more of a golden it's more of a golden day or so but we really try to get that time shrunk down whenever we can so logistically we can get to a town called barrow they've recently changed the name and uh i'm not going to try to pronounce it because it is um up up i believe it is okay and that's 1100 miles from anchorage so that's about a three-hour flight or uh, if you live in New Jersey, that's going down to Florida to drop your patient off. <laughs> and you're flying for three hours and you're still in the same state. That's pretty crazy. Uh, that, is, that is unbelievable. I mean, it, it's a, a medevac flight to a, to a referral center. That's a three-hour flight. Yes. And there's also, now that we're coming into a tourist season, people from all over the U.S. come visit Alaska. They mm-hmm. get injured or sick. And if they have uh, an existing condition that can only be seen at a hospital in their in their home area, we would provide that 
flight back. So I think the f- longest medevac flight I've heard um, recently was Anchorage to Miami. So that's a, a great distance there. Yeah, that's... I'm just trying to put that in perspective. That's That's got to be an eight-hour flight. Sure. I mean... Eight, ten hours. It's, it's pretty much the whole day flying, yes. Wow. So... That's amazing. I mean, for for people that are, you know, for for paramedics and, you know, like we pride ourselves on, look, you know, all I have to do is medicine for an hour. You know, it's like at the most, the sickest patient I have, I have them for 45 minutes to an hour. Sure. That doesn't even start for you guys. You're not even you're not even there yet. Right. So and it's amazing how because we have the extended uh, times, transport times someone having a STEMI in a village far away from the closest PCI center is um, probably three hours. We may have to give them TNKs and start the non-STEMI or STEMI protocol with uh, Lovinox, heparin, aspirin, stuff that these people wouldn't probably get until they already been registered, seen by a doctor in in so that ER. that's an interesting perspective, just due, due to the distances and the times involved, certain time specific things entail that you have to have a, a wider scope of practice than, yes. say, you know, somebody in a rural or a suburban um, advanced life support area. So, yeah, talk about some of those things. Let's what what do you guys what do you all have that's a little bit different than what's on my truck, for example? Sure. So if we are going thrombolytics are a big one, right? (laughs) Uh, We have an iStat. We can run a basic blood gas and see if we have someone on a ventilator. We make ventilator changes. We can see them trending up, trending down, and make our adjustments as we go. Okay. So that's kind of like immediate feedback. Right, because your 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 patient's going to be vented for three or four hours. Sure. Yes. Like mine's going to be vented for thirty minutes. Exactly. Okay. So there's other things uh, we may go for a trauma patient that requires blood, and okay. the small hospital or equivalent to uh, an urgent care center. There's a mid level that's there, and okay. there's a community aid provider there. They may begin blood. And one or two units that they give to that patient may deplete that whole area of givable blood in situations. So usually in situations like that, we will go to the trauma center uh, in Anchorage. There's two of them. And whichever one they're going to, we'll try to grab enough um, blood to so that whole area isn't without. So, okay, so so if you're flying out to a a tertiary tertiary uh, facility and it's more like a like an urgent care that's right. kind of up gun to kind of handle things for the time being right and they really try their best ah, i'm sure right. you know, yeah it's it sounds a lot like australia with you know like some of the rural clinics with the gps that they deal with um and uh you know so you're going to actually take blood out to them and just kind of replace it so they're not that's right they're yes. not trashed for the rest of the week right. oh wow um so ventil- obviously ventilators are a big thing, blood gases, um, thrombolytics. Yes. So talk, uh, talk about that. So the thrombolytics are for uh, active heart attacks that we have. We are, okay. a- we are able to uh, administer them only after we contact medical control and we run down our checklist and make sure that the patient's eligible to receive them. Right. So there's going to be a time where someone may have had that chest pain when they woke up at four in the morning and you are transporting them and you know that 
you have to either take them to Fairbanks or Anchorage, depending on where they are in the state, or if you're in the southeast, that they may not get to a cath table for an hour or two, three hours sometimes. Okay. Um, and if weather is perfect, that's using those times liberally. Sometimes you may have to delay. So that kind of takes the whole um, time as muscle mm-hmm. and the ability to try to perfuse tissues that right. maybe that maybe have blood clots. So we would give them the TNK and then try to uh, revascularize, re-oxygenate, and make sure that we get blood flowing again to the heart. Okay. So TNK, talk about it a little bit more. What, what, um, what is it? What's it? How's it different from TPA or um, streptokinase or anything like that? So there's, uh, and why did you guys pick that over? You know, like say given TPA. So the tissue plasm is right. a TPA. That's something that I think has been given a broader. Um, usage because it's been around a little bit longer okay and uh tnk's is is the drug of choice for our med control and our doctors in the area so uh it's more available to us to give we i mean we basically have a it comes with a a price tag so when we use it we have to make sure that we swap out even even for right so when it comes to uh places like alaska you have to use uh, what's available to you. Mm-hmm. So it may be uh, TNK or um, if there's a shortage on just our simple drugs, Epi or Versa, mm-hmm. there's got to be a, a, a wiggle way and leeway to be adaptable in order to do this. So so the the interesting, and, and don't anybody think that like I'm a superstar here. I literally looked it up while I was talking. Um, the cool thing about TNK or Tenecteplase is I noticed that it's a bolus only med. Because I'm familiar with TPA, and I worked in a place where we gave TPA and did that stuff. And that's, that's you know, it's the bolus, and then you have to do the maintenance infusion, and you got to flush out the maintenance infusion so you get the full dose and blah, blah, blah. But this seems like it's just a, a bolus medication. You just give it one dose, and right. that's pretty much it. And you give it uh, weight-based. So, so, right, yeah. Right, and then it's maxed out just kind of like TPA, the same so that's interesting. Um, and it's a one dose thing. You don't have to f- do a follow on maintenance infusion. So it's kind of, it kind of cuts down a lot of the, the static, so to speak, around doing things like that, you know, when you're given thrombolytics. So that, that's really interesting. Um, so talk to me about logistics. Cause, you know, they talk about, you know, people, you know, everybody talks about like, oh, you know, we get to do this and we get to do that and, you know, your scope of practice. But, I've always been interested in logistics and I would think that in a place where you have to fly three, four hours to retrieve a patient and then, you know, a couple hours back or whatever, you might get laid in with weather and you might have to be stuck treating this person for a while. Talk to, talk to us about, you know, especially in Alaska as a rule, just because of the distances involved and just because of the lack, uh, the lack of backup, I would assume Talk about your 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 mantra preparation, and you know how, how do you make sure your stuff is there, and what what do you have to think about, you know that maybe your normal ground medic who rides an urban unit or a suburban unit doesn't have to. So there are uh, certain areas, especially along the Aleut- the Aleutian chain, which is a chain of islands that extend all the way out to an island called Shimia, and then there's only two more islands, but they're not populated mm-hmm. so 
Shimia is 1,700 miles away from Anchorage. Excuse me, I got that backwards. It's 1,600 miles from Shimia to Anchorage and 1,700 miles from Shimia to Tokyo. So you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Wow. So And you're down So south. you're theoretically closer to Japan at that point than you are that's what they, to your home base. That's what they had said. So that's kind of like the very last <laughs> chain that you could possibly... Uh, pick up a patient from that's okay that actually has people on it so that you without speaking russian (laughs) you also or japanese right it's true when you uh go for transport transport a patient even if it's a a flight from anchorage to seattle Mm -hmm. you figure three hours flight time there's going to be an hour ambulance ride based on traffic or if there's baseball games in seattle you want to make sure you bring six to eight hours worth of medication for that patient, whether it's enough uh, Versed or fentanyl to keep them sedated. Okay. Um, if they have meds that are due at night, that you, this uh, transport's taking place during the day, mm-hmm. anything that you think could possibly take a day, if you're flying, your plane may have a mechanical issue where you may have to land or you have to stop for fuel, which could take up to an hour, hour and a half, depending on how fast And you're you on are the hook the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So there are certain things where our pilots plan for uh, plan A, plan B, but you also need a C and D. Mm-hmm. So um, there are storms that could be the size of hurricanes that we just won't see for the lack of radar coverage. And the only time that we know what the weather is maybe going somewhere is one, there's someone in the control tower that can give a pilot a live update or they re- actually report and have that to the National Weather Service that we can okay. look for. Uh, or cameras that are there. And you have to believe that the weather's not going to be the same if it takes you half a day to get there while you're there. So there's got to be, you got to have to have enough fuel in your plane to make it to your secondary destination, maybe to wait for weather and make sure that that place has the ability for you to also get more fuel. Okay. So, yes. So logistics is huge. You yes. you have to plan pretty much for everything. You have to have enough supplies to to run your vent. To if you have an intubated patient that's sedated, you're looking at hours of making sure that they're not coming out of sedation. Um, if you you know you have to make sure that everything's covered because you're really it. There's really no there's no backup option here. There's times if you do a cross country flight, you also may have to top off the oxygen that's in your in your med beds as well so wow how do you do that yeah, there's um uh, you may not be able to see it from the outside but underneath are large oxygen tanks that are as long as the bed are okay so yeah there's times maybe that eight hour flight or 12 hour flight if you have someone that's a hundred percent or you maybe have them on bipap that's going to run those bottles dry pretty quickly so you also make sure you plan for that as well that the next fuel stop that you are also topping off your bottle so you never run out so you're always, yeah, you're always, you've got to just always be diligent. You can't yes. wait for the next call. You know, it's not like, eh, we used two epis on this call. Now oh, we got six more. Good enough. Yes. <laughs> and then on top of it, it's all the typical flight stuff. It's, you know, the same things that, you know, we just had an episode on, you know, um, you know, we had Kevin talking about flight operations and, you know, making sure your latches are covered and making sure everything is taken care of on the aircraft and, you know, foreign objects and things like that. So all the flight stuff, plus this extreme, um, you know, patient care time where you're with this patient for literally hours. You're, this is, this is real true critical care. This is, you're keeping that ICU level care, um, 
consistent all the way through. Right. And this is uh, the reason why our flight nurses have minimum of, you know, three to five years is probably on the low end of what they look for when they hire. So, and our medics the same way. It's, do you have, have you worked in a busy EMS system? Do you know how to... Yeah, let's talk about that. So, so somebody who's listening to our show and says, God, you know, that sounds cool. I like Alaska. You know, I've seen it on National Geographic channel or whatever. It looks pretty. And so what do you, so how, how do, what makes, what, what do what does your shop look for in a paramedic or a nurse coming out to, to them? You know, what are the qualities you're looking for? What are the intangibles? What's the minimums of you know, what you think are the bare minimums of what you need to be able to do. Sure. You could be a paramedic for 10 years, but if you've um, only done in a facility transports, dialysis runs, bring back homes from hospitals and never actually um, have done time sensitive interventions or know what it's like to do 12, 12 hours worth of running around canceling and doing urgent medicine on traumas and stuff. It, it can be difficult and, I think um, the the area, especially Flight World, kind of struggles with um, years doing the job versus the type of experience you have. So sure, uh, we've talked about that. Yeah. You know, the the ten years or one year repeated ten times. Exactly, and there's also instances of your really good medics already have the the fire department paramedic job, or they have the flight job that maybe they think about. Maybe they want to come. And travel to Alaska, but uh, everyone up here kind of seems to be on a two-year cycle. There's most people that are in Alaska or brought up there because they were in the military. Mm-hmm. So, and that's okay. that was like their big exposure to it. Um, like I said, uh, again, the numbers. There's not a million people who live there. So, if you are um, kind of up there, you may already have a job that you may not want to leave. If you are uh, working in an ICU as a nurse. And you're really comfortable there. It's almost impossible to try to grab people like that to say, okay, now let's try something new. Because everyone, I think, that gets a flight job, gets an offer, interviews, they are already at the top of the game of where they are working in their field. Whether it's you know working in an urban EMS or if they work for um, a really prestigious critical care transport unit. And... It's, it's a lot of uh, self-reflection to say, am I able to or humble enough to be a new guy all over again and go through the paces? Right. And and there is a new guy thing to this just because, you know, talking about the distances involved and, and the ability to think forward. And you really have to think four or five steps ahead, you know, regu- you know, as a as a ground medic. And, you know, I'm not knocking. I mean, look, I love being a ground medic. Um, but you know, 45 minutes to an hour is not a hard lift, you know, eight hours, nine hours, total time of taking care of a patient, a sick patient. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of work and it requires a different kind of mentality. Um, and I can see how, you know, we're all, you know, this is a profession where, you know, we got a lot of egos. We we all think, you know, if you ask everybody, well, who's the best medic, everybody go, well, next to me, I mean, you know, it's me and no, this guy's pretty good too, you know? That's that is humbling. You have to be able to, you know, I think that's a that's a really good point to to be able to realize, hey, look, this is a totally different dimension of care. And to kind of realize, hey, I'm okay with being the new guy right now because there's things that I have to learn. There's also times that people come from great programs and they just 
um, get stuck in that loop of this isn't the way we've done it where I used to work. Okay. And just grabbing onto new concepts and just understanding that there's a lot of independent study that goes on to, you know, just obtaining a job like this. There's studying for your FPC that you mm -hmm. have to have that's probably a lot of cracking open paramedic texts that you haven't had since you've been in school right? and such. And then there's a lot of things on that test that aren't in those books. So you have to financially, you know, put up a little bit of your own money to sit through a review course or maybe take a, a A&P uh, right. refresher class to yourself. Sure. And so. then, and, and on top of that, you know, staying current with the new stuff and, and the science that's out there and, you know, how it applies to, your patients and things like that. So I guess it turns into a really cerebral type of job. Yes. Great. Yeah. And that's kind of where it should be. You know, I mean, that's, that's the profession. So one of the things that intrigues me is, you know, being up in Alaska, uh, you know, you end up having to operate a lot with your local agencies. Yes. So how does that work? And you're with them a lot longer, I think, than, most of us, you know, when we're dealing with cooperating agencies, whether, you know, it's fire, whether it's hospital based, privates, publics, whatever, you seem like you, your distances, you're going to have, you know, it's not a five minute trip. Again, even if it's a ground thing, you know, or going to the aircraft or coming from the aircraft, you're, you're with them a while. How does, what are, you know, how does, how do you make that work? Some of the bigger villages we go to, they have a fire department that you see um, and those villages tend to be the hub of where the smaller ones would bring something to a hospital Okay, um, that is probably 35 miles north of the Arctic Circle and but it's still an hour and a half flight back to Anchorage so they'll their main job is stabilizing but when we go to smaller villages as they say are not on the road system okay. so that means even though it's the dead winter and it's uh, no roads go leading to them, only accessible by air. Cause most of the times the waterways, rivers are frozen, and, and a lot of the rivers even become um, ice roads so that people wow. travel on with their ATVs or snow machines, as they call them up there. Uh, there's When you go to the bigger villages, like I said, you can actually deal with, with a organized fire department. A lot of times it's a village public safety officer that's going to bring you on the back of his um, snow machine and take you to either so to a clinic that they really can't leave because that's the only medical personnel in that village right. or they'll take you right to the person's home so there is an element of scene response sometimes to the job wow as well so um, I haven't been on a dog sled I've been drugged <laughs> behind in sleds before and are thrown on the back of an ATV to go oh, wow. get somebody okay or in the middle of the winter and in, in a pickup truck where it's so, you know, we, we talk about, you know, when you talk about trauma or, you know, shock patients and you talk about, um, you know, hypo, hypothermia and coagulopathy, what do you guys, how do you deal with that? How do you address it in the field? We like, have. How do you keep these people from dying on the way to the aircraft? There's uh, life, there's the big down comforters called, number one, you just want to start and keep patient dry and you want to keep them warm so there's products like the life blanket or the doctor down that's basically okay. the down sleeping bag that everyone goes into. so that's once um proponent of it then there's the fluid warmers 
that we have, we monitor patients' um, temperatures with our vital signs okay. to make sure that we're keeping them in the in the target zone. Now, how do you guys? How do you do that? Are you using you know some places? I know they use the tympanic. Sometimes you have forehead thermometers. Tympanic core temperatures, such as uh, uh, temperatures and Foley catheters, that okay. we may put in and, and get, maintain a core temperature that way. Okay, cool. R- recording that goes right onto, onto our monitor. Okay. So yeah. So you actually have temperature probes going through the foleys that it can actually go into the monitors? Yeah, that's one way. Yes. Wow. Okay, that's that's different. So, um, yeah, fluid warmers I could see being a huge, you know, important thing simply because I mean you could be in a place it's not inconceivable your IV fluid could freeze. Or just the the tubing it takes from the go to the bag from the pump or so or from the warmer itself you have to make sure everything is insulated and covered and inside with the patient oh wow yes there's um i haven't seen it but i've heard the stories this is why you keep everything inside and warm because the actual iv tubing will freeze with the iv fluid inside of it (laughs) wow that's that's incredible you know i mean i I know that and look i know there's some people probably going well you know that happens in other places too but you know that's something that most people don't don't think of you know um you know, we're, st- we're still dealing with, you know, if you talk to Kevin or some of the other, guys, you know, people on the show, you know, we, we've talked about the heat in the middle of the winter driving up and every door in the ambulance is open. Like yes. you don't get to do that in Alaska. No. You know, when it's. No, you, uh, if you do it, you'll do, you'll do it only once because it's, it's unbearable to when you're in the really cold sections. If, if I'm cold then I know my patient's cold. Right. Right. Okay. And we're coming, uh not already uh, hypovolemic and hypotensive and sick and uh, unable already to cope with what's happened to them. Right. And so, yeah, it's really important to keep uh, the, the core temperatures. So least. big, so big part of the, of the, um, the operation is really maintaining core temperature. Yes. Okay. Um, what else, what are some other interesting things that, you know, that you've developed in your practice from being up there there's uh the, the one like tips and tricks had, right they've they've had um hats even okay to, for for the patient to wear um and some had the company logo on them you would just throw them right on you know right away you uh, you know you keep the head warm to keep everything else more comfortable okay right that's not that's actually not a bad idea i mean you could see like you know and, and i could see this in you know down here the you know the east coast it does get cold sure not a bad idea you know go go to the dollar store drop you know put five bucks and keep a few in your your bag you know it's not a bad it's not a bad idea and uh most of the people who live in the area um they have clothing already that's suitable for them to be outside for a while so you incorporate that where you can with the rewarming too, uh, whether it's putting their jacket on backwards to have at least something okay. covering them. So, yeah. And then all of our airplanes are temperature controlled too, so we can raise the heat inside or um, to the point where you're uncomfortable, but you want to make sure the patient is. Right. If, you, if you're so not you sweating, yeah, you guys follow the, you're not sweating, it's too cold for your patient. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can imagine uh, you probably attend births too. You know, premature births, things like that. I mean, that's got to be even more of a pucker factor when you deal with, you know, 20 below temperatures or, you know, same kind of thing. Just as much of an unknown of what you're responding to than uh, anywhere else you're going to answer 911 calls. And there's times and uh, part of the clinical 
competencies to some of these uh, programs you work for up there because there's more than one company in Alaska. Is right. They'll they'll put you in an, in an o, uh, you'll do an OB rotation for you know several days, and you're not getting out of there until you've been at least hands on with a birth. And a lot of the uh, doctors and patients understand that you happen to be in the hospital today, but tomorrow, or even when you come off shift in the next morning, you're responding to the parking lot of, of a village or the airport because they tried to meet the medevac there and time wasn't on their side. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So there's uh, there's teams that just do NICU transports. Okay. So if they happen to have the luxury of time and knowing of what they're expecting, um, you may be able to get the isolate loaded in and stuff. But yeah, there's been a few births that have happened um but by no fault of anyone's that it's like wow this is uh we thought we had enough time to get to the hospital and it's just happening in the airplane or such <laughs> yes oh boy yeah uh, and you can't pull over to the side no, of the of road not, no no so you just make do yeah there's no um uh, no treating with jet fuel or diesel fuel you you have to oh you guys you don't use to, diesel boluses you have to oh, put wow. on the gown and you have to <laughs> yeah you have to be able to know how to do um, how to check cervical checks and make sure that uh, you know what stages of labor that the mother may be in. Okay. And took a so you and your part so yes. you you and your partner are, are you know trained on that and yes. that's part of your scope and you know it, it's really almost like you you're more of a uh, more advanced generalist you know like, having to know pretty much a little bit about everything. You're an extension of of the, the ER coming out to you, right? Or sometimes the trauma center or an extension of, um, the OB unit. Okay. Makes sense. Um, what was the toughest thing that you had to learn going up there? What was, what was the biggest challenge when you first got up there? There were skill wise, okay. uh, the things that they talk about, you know, pericardis and or inserting chest tubes. But, uh, Okay, so both of those things are in your scope because yes. you get up there and you may not have an option. You get somebody with a tamponade or you've got somebody with a bad pneumo or a hemothorax. You've got to do that. Finger thoracostomy. And then if you're doing that, okay. you're inserting a chest tube. Um, and then there's other skills that I took for granted, like getting an ABG. That was something that uh, was never taught to me. Uh, no, it's not. Right. It's not generally something that we, you know, we even deal with. And... Uh, Certain other skills that, uh, like uh, Foley catheters, having been trained in Philadelphia, that was a Pennsylvania paramedic skill that we did had right. to, that we did learn. Yeah, it's a national registry thing, but right. uh, you know, you know, Pennsylvania, a few other states too. I've never done one. You know, it's not something. Right. <laughs> like, eh, all right, yeah, good enough. <laughs> as far as um, different medications, okay. everything that that's probably in the ICU's formulary that my flight nurse can give. Um, that they're very knowledgeable on. We rely heavily on them, but you should know the big ones. You know, the, um, your vasopressors and your antibiotics was something else that I had to brush okay, up so on. Okay, so you had to get familiar with antibiotics because you were actually giving those out in the field. That's right. Okay. And as far as, like, being responsible for blood administration, there's uh, certain times where uh, planes are staffed paramedic, uh, paramedic as well. So okay. it's not always flight nurse. It's almost 99%, but there are a few exceptions where... Um, they have almost village responses. So it's almost like a flying ambulance. You can think of it that way. Okay. They're picking up and bringing them back to some of the bigger hospitals. And you have to have that scope. So you had to kind of get up on that yes. competency wise. 
that's really interesting. And I'm sure there's some people, you know, heads are going to kind of explode that oh, two paramedics are giving blood without a nurse there. How, sure. how is this working? You know, and how does that work? You know, where is there friction between nursing and paramedicine up there that, you know, Hey, you're infringing on my turf or this is my world. You know, we, we talk to people and, you know, down here, um, especially on the East Coast, you know, you know, especially with flight programs, you know, it seems to be a consensus, at least in this area, that, you know, scene flights, it's the medic. They're the primary. If it's an inner facility, it's the nurse, you know, and there's there's a it's not that there's a wall, but there's almost like a semi permeable mem- membrane between the two of them. It seems that in Alaska, you don't have that luxury. No. You have to operate to your scope. You have to know your game. They have to know their game. And there's really not a lot of time for ego to get involved or letters at the end of your name. None of uh, my flight nurses would tolerate me sitting out and not charting on any inner facility. So it's it's really okay. call, um, call for call that we... Okay. And uh, some of my partners remember where we left off in the rotation since I work two weeks on, two weeks off. Okay. Like, well, remember that last flight? Uh, I charted, so now it's your turn. So it's um, the job scope is the same, very identical. In Alaska, we are licensed by the medical board. Mm-hmm. So there's, I know that's a thing on the East Coast here where, you know, m- medics are certified, nurses are licensed. And that yeah, talk about that a thing. little. That's interesting. How, how did that come out? How did that come about? So in Alaska, there's different levels of uh, EMS. Okay. There's EMT basic. Right. Then they have their advanced level. Then they have EMTs. So it's one, two, and EMT three. Okay. Is considered EMT three is considered ALS, and then there's national registered paramedic, and that's if you um, aren't working but volunteering, and you don't go through the board uh, licensing program to get your MICP. Okay. You can technically still be a nationally registered paramedic, but operating almost at an advanced EMT level. So, okay. Um, and so you actually have a, a med, you're actually licensed by the medical board and you're, you're reviewed by the medical board. If there's an issue, it's not right. a matter of state EMS office or somebody that's, right. that's you know, saying, well, you know, we kind of didn't think this, they literally look at it from a professional standpoint. There was a time where the board, um, allowed, uh, medics to administer ketamine but the nursing board um, recently within a year or two said it was okay for rns to administer it as well so any patient that you have to sedate or give um, ketamine to it was almost the paramedic pushing it and i remember working in a state where paramedics weren't allowed to push the paralytic um but they could do the rsi yes yeah that's yeah that's some interesting stuff we you know we see that and i you know it's funny we're still you know in in this area you know you still get people like with ketamine why are oh that's that's a dangerous medication it's like or well why why are you doing that that's an anesthesia med it's like no it's not it's just a medication um that's that's interesting it's just it's very uh, that's an interesting perspective um so you've got to, you're expected to pull your weight. You know, the fact that whether you're a paramedic, your partner's a nurse, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all. No. Is there things, are there things that specifically that the nurse is able to do that you're not or vice versa? Is there something where it's recognized that that's a nursing function as opposed to a paramedic function? I don't think outside of the banter of, you know, uh, that's a nursing skill. That's a, a medic skill. Okay. It's it's not tolerated. Um, a lot of our 
nurses have been medics before. Okay. Some have maybe been EMT, so they, you can't pull the wool over their eyes and say this is what the paramedics do only. Um, okay. As if we're in a in a village or a remote on a location, and I'm having difficulty with intubation, my nurse has been trained to intubate as well. So, they're uh, so it's almost I'm so their backup. They're my backup. Okay. Yes. So it's so it's it's truly a professional relationship where you know the nursing knowledge base just gives you a little bit more flavor. It gives you a little bit more ability to better take care of this patient and manage them effectively. Yes. It's not so much you get into a hey, it's me, it's you, it's you know this is my thing. You don't do that thing. No. It's very cool. And it's 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 very cool when you know. Um, your nurse has a strong ICU background, so you can lean on them just a little bit more okay. with their knowledges. Um, but at the same time, you have to learn because your next partner may not have been born in an ICU and then have come in. That's an interesting point. So, so even if you have somebody that can carry a little bit, the, the expectation, the culture that you have there is, okay, great, you're not up to speed on this. Well, you know, your partner will help you out, but you better get up to speed. Yes. It can change cult call to call uh, uh we're big on uh fatigue um assessment and management okay so like those flights that are cross-country are rare but if you get enough uh, multiple flights back to back that are one or two or three hours long and you're at the you know the time where you have to be adult enough to say like i need to safely take a break and okay. that's something. Yeah. How do, how do, how do you manage that up there? You know, I mean, that's, that's starting to be a very big thing down in, you know, urban suburban EMS that we're, we're recognizing that fatigue is playing a role in patient errors and, and negative outcomes. And what, what have you, what is your shop figured out about that? What do you, I mean, beyond the normal, the typical flight, you know, the, the three to go one to say no mentality, um, what do you, what do you guys do? What have you, what have you adopted that, that seems to be working well? There's, um, when we come on the shift, we assume, uh, that you weren't had any delays getting into town before you started your shift. A lot of our people commute up to Alaska. Okay. So they live anywhere in the lower 48. You just show up for work at 7 a.m. on your rotation day. Wow. So, <laughs> um, for the 14 days, we are almost living like a small family. Okay. So we are in close contact. We've known if someone has been getting um, really hammered with really bad calls where you are doing the uh, simple interfacility transports, not that anything's simple, but you know, like they've, they've maybe had a cardiac arrest on this day. Right. The regular stuff that just grinds and it just keeps building up. And then um, you, you assess each other as well as you have to assess yourself. There's risk assessments that we do. There's, there's things you just being on shift more than seven days in a row, or if you've completed so many calls in a 16. So yeah, that's another thing. So it's a, so it's a two week on two week off rotation. That's right. That's the particular. So it's 14, 24 hour days. That's right. You live there. That's right. And the only way a schedule like that works is to mitigate risk as much as you can yourself. Okay. So if you know that um, I'm just tired, you know, I don't, maybe you're jet lagged or, or not. You have to be, and I know I've said before, like just adult enough to say, like put your ego aside. These are um, patients that deserve you at, at your sharpest. So there's other med crews that are on duty as well. So 
you have to discuss and talk and you're allowed to take a time out. There's so you have a process in place where you can say, Hey, I'm not a hundred percent on this and I need to stand down for a little bit and yes. I'll be back up to speed. And I would get, you know, I'm assuming that there's full living quarters and sleeping quarters and yes. you know, everybody has a room and the ability to take a shower and eat, which is dramatically different from most of the United States EMS where, you know, Hey, there's your street corner, there's the Seven Eleven, and you know, if you need food and you know, um, that's a really interesting perspective. And then, so when you're on your two weeks, you just come home. You just get on a plane, come home. Yes. That's what I've been doing. Yes. <laughs> for the last year. It's a lot of, it's a lot of time to spend in a commercial. I used to complain about airplane. my commute. I'm kind of like, hmm. So you have frequent flyer miles and the whole nine yards. And, exactly. Oh, Lounge wow. memberships. and <laughs> That's amazing. So again, what, so I guess we're, we're coming up on a hard out and, um, I guess, so what would you, what would you say to somebody who's considering this type of life? Who's saying, wow, you know, two weeks up, two weeks off, I could live up there. You know, I like the view. What would you say to them? It's, um, it's a tough environment to be in. The winters are long, dark. Uh, there's times where if you come in to work at 7 a.m., the sun's not coming up till 10 a.m., and then it's going down by three. That's in the dead of winter. And the further north you go over the Arctic Circle, there's times where the sun never breaks the horizon. So that's like seasonal affective disorder is is a thing. Okay. Uh, people have their happy lights that they keep next to their bed that shines that uh, vitamin D okay. conversion in their skin to hopefully give them some kind of dose of um, normalcy. Mm -hmm. And then in the summertime, you need to have blackout curtains as the sun seems to never go down there's the midnight sun that happens okay. coming up in june so it's 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 a cycle of where you see this big buildup where everyone's happy and chipper until june uh, 21st whenever the solstice is and then you start losing five minutes a day so next thing you know in 10 days you've lost an hour of daylight and it happens it happens very quickly so that tends to affect people harder the first year then as you get used to it um you tend to get more friends and you get to find out more things to do. So you take your mind off of the atmosphere going on around you. So you have to, you have to have an open personality and you have to be friendly with people. There's many people in Alaska that if you are on the side of the road in need of assistance, that someone's going to help you because everyone's in the same boat out there. So, um, recently there was a, a 7.0, um, earthquake that happened okay. in November. Um, the roads were repaired within 72 hours on the a major um, highways um, exit ramp. There was there wasn't any looting. There wasn't um, okay and and violence amongst the people because it's just a different mentality you have to have up there. It's not quite survivalist, but um, we're all in this together, kind of thing. Yes. And yeah. Wow. So the challenges are there. The challenges are there if it's not just from uh, mental health, from the environment, from um, you probably moved up there from where you've had a big happy group of friends to now having to make a whole new um, right. group of friends, which is probably difficult, you know, the, the more adult you are at the time. So, so a challenging environment, challenging practice, um, challenging world to live in up there. Yeah. But uh, 
definitely worthwhile, huh? I believe so. Um, like I said, if a city boy like me can do it for three years, and I don't see any end to it soon, so. Well, that's great. Yeah. That's, I think that's a great way to end it. So, um, Dave, want to thank you for coming on. Uh, this is uh, really, uh, you know, eye-opening for a lot of us and uh, some of the insights about, you know, the, the care you provide. Um, I know uh, there was uh, recently a uh, incident up there with an aircraft, and uh, we're going to link to the, uh, there's a fund for the uh, families of the um, the crew and uh the patient we're going to uh we're going to link to that in the show notes great um so um you know obviously you know our thoughts are always you know with everybody you know this is one big uh dysfunctional family we like to say but uh you know we like to stick together so um you know i think uh, that's a great place to end it so dave dave i want to thank you for coming on i want to wish you all the best uh, thank good you for luck when you're up there and uh Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, so that's it for everybody. Um, again, I'm Dan on the Overrun. Uh, check us out on uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Uh, we're on Stitcher, Google Play. You know Ed's better at this than I am, so uh, forgive me. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts, anything like that, check out our website, Overrun Productions. Uh, check out the merch page. Uh, buy a onesie for a kid you know or a T-shirt. And... Um, you know, if you're out there on social media, post up the stickers. Uh, if you like, rate and review us on iTunes or uh, Google, uh, you know, let us know. We'll send you a sticker pack as a thank you. And uh, that's it. So for the overrun, I'm Dan. Thanks for uh, thanks for listening.